to Spongebob Lematic. This is a new Spongebob-based podcast. The general idea with this is it's going to be going through one episode of the show per podcast session. So one episode of the podcast will correlate with one episode of the show. Should be easy enough to keep track of that way. So in the future, if there's a specific episode you'd like to jump to, that's another good way to do that. Um, so there are two of us here. Hello, my name is Shane. And my name is Kurt. And we have been watching SpongeBob since we were children. It did come out around the perfect time for that. Um, for those of you who may not know, for those who are new to SpongeBob or who have never seen it, because I guess those people exist, though they're not very common in this age group. Uh, SpongeBob is a Nickelodeon cartoon, a Nicktoon as they like to call them, um, that started in 1997. And now to give some background for people who know about animation or things like that in general, the other uh, Nicktoons that were airing at that time, um, the oldest one was Rugrats. Rugrats went on for quite a while. But other than that, we had Hey Arnold, Angry Beavers, Cat Dog, Wild Thornberries. And then there were two different kinds of clip shows. Like there was Kablam and Oh Yeah Cartoons, which were sort of just like almost like backdoor pilots for shows. I believe Oh Yeah Cartoons is where Fairly Odd Parents started. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm I, pretty sure. I think you're right. I forgot about, oh God, I forgot about those shows. But yeah, those, those are old ones. Exactly, yeah. So that's to give some perspective about where the network and where kind of children's media, you know, cartoons were at at that time. Obviously, cartoons are really not like respected as an adult medium at that time. So, you know, it would be things more aimed at children. SpongeBob is very interesting and it's really not surprising that it really got more popular than those other ones in that it really brought a different energy to the table than the rest of those. You know, when you read those, if you're familiar with those shows, you might remember like Angry Beavers and Cat Dog, they have this kind of like high energy sort of slapstick-esque idea of what they want to be, how they want to present themselves. Then you have like Hey Arnold and Wild Thornberries, uh, more so Hey Arnold is like this, but they're a little bit more like almost like downer cartoons and that like they're just there <laughs> to teach you a life lesson about like, man, bad things sure do happen. Um, but SpongeBob is very different than that in that there is physical comedy, there's high energy in it, but it does have a, a bit of wit to it that we will get into as we get going here. One thing that is important to note about episode one, you know, pilot episodes generally do have higher view counts than other episodes are going to have going forward. Uh, episode one specifically does actually have the highest U.S. viewer count up until season four uh, for its premiere date. Huh. And it is put into three parts. So when we're talking about an episode, we're going to be talking about, so episode one isn't just episode one. It's one A, one B, and one C in this instance. Normally it's just A and B. There actually won't be another three-part episode until season five. And after season five, there are no other three-part episodes. Don't know why season five is like that, but it is. So we are going to be talking about, it's essentially almost like three mini stories that encompass one 21 minute block. But if you were to see it on TV, that's how it would be set up. And just for the sake of, um, in, in case people aren't following along with episodes, but titles, uh, this is the episodes in this one are Help Wanted, Reef Blower, and Tea at the Tree Dome. That is correct. And those are the orders. So if at any point, I'll, I'll probably refer to them by their actual title, but if yeah. I say like 1A, 1B, 1C, uh, respectively, those are indeed Help Wanted, Reef Blower, and Tea at the Tree Dome. Yeah. Um, so with that, that's some good backing information, kind of gets you into the cultural landscape of where we were at at that time, you know, what was airing, what were cartoons like. So that kind of puts you in that mindset if you weren't there as it was happening or if you were too young to really remember what it was like. That's where our story starts. Yeah. And I think uh, kind of going off that, SpongeBob, looking back on it, is a, an interesting twist between the shows that you mentioned. You mentioned shows like Hey Arnold and Wild Thornberries. And those, while they were definitely downer cartoons, they seem to be a little more narrative focused than something like Cat Dog. Where that was, Cat Dog was very much episode by episode. Things would just happen. Things were already pretty much established, and nothing would really change in the narrative. Whereas with something like Wild Thornberries, there would be changes that would occur through maybe not episode to episode, but season to season. You would definitely notice stuff. And SpongeBob kind of sits in a weird line where, like, every once in a while that happens, but it very much sticks to an episode by episode approach, except for this episode where things are introduced for the first time. That is the case. And um, one thing that would be a reason for that 
is some of the writers on this show for certain episodes were involved uh, in Hey Arnold, as well as I know Rocco's Modern Life, some of them were involved in as well, which did kind of have a more Rocco's Modern Life definitely had, you know, slapstick and lowbrow humor, but it also did try and like have you know a story going on a lot of times. So those could definitely be related parts of that and to kind of get more into that and get into the episode itself. So um, episode 1A, Help Wanted, uh, might be better known as the pilot of the show. It was written by Stephen Hillenberg, Derek Draymond, and Tim Hill. So what's interesting about those three specifically, they did do Help Wanted and they also did Reef Blower, which is, you know, 1B, as we've mentioned before. Um, but what's interesting to note about that, however, is that other than those and Bubble Stand, which will be next time, that's episode 2A, those three don't have another writing credit on the show. Um, at least Steven Hillenberg and Derek Draymond don't. So huh. even though they were involved, this is actually, they pretty much only wrote like the pilot. So they, they sold it. Then they said, okay, somebody else handle that. Yeah. I mean, and I feel like that happens with a lot of shows too. I, I don't actually think it's that uncommon. It's they'll come up with the concept, you sell it, and then so a team just takes it from there. Um, that's what happens a lot with pilots. If you watch a lot of, I mean, and this goes for things that aren't just cartoons, but if you watch a lot of shows, things will be very different from the pilot to like i mean characters will be different and then we'll, we'll see a, a bit of that here but characters will be different uh things that were set up will be changed the pilots are typically very different than the shows that eventually end up becoming popular um but there are definitely a lot of things that are the same and different um in the spongebob pilot mm -hmm. and that's another thing that should be noted is even though some things do change there is a pitch bible for the show it wasn't something that was known about at first, but it is something that is public access now. You can Google it, the SpongeBob Pitch Bible. It's essentially written as though it were a nature documentary of biologists studying new undersea life. But in that Pitch Bible, Stephen Hillenberg does actually outline some ideas that would very obviously become episodes later. Squeaky Boots is a really obvious one if you look at it. You know, he writes down a whole thing. SpongeBob gets a pair of squeaky boots and he hides them under the floorboards. Uh, he being Mr. Krabs, but we'll, we'll get to that episode when we get there. But mm -hmm. it is just important to note that even though Hillenberg isn't listed as a writer for some of those episodes, he did essentially do an outline of them when he first came up with the show. Gotcha. So they just took a lot of those concepts and just made them into stuff later down the road. Absolutely. And so going back to Help Wanted, one thing you'll notice right away, um, if you either watch it a couple times, or if you're just someone who's like got a good eye for animation, you can definitely tell 1A as a segment is the pilot. It's its own bit. It clearly was done before the other things. SpongeBob doesn't feel like he has a model sheet. Um, his, you know, face size is a little bit changing per frame. The general, you know, balance is there, but how much of his face it takes up is different per shot. However, in spite of that, they do a lot with the animation they had and presumably the complete lack of budget. Because with a pilot, you never know if you're going to get picked up. You kind of make that to try and get picked up. Um, so you'll see, you know, some colors are off. Another thing you might notice, too, just from this early time, uh, you know, if you watch SpongeBob now, like you sit down, you get a commercial for it or something, the pitch of his voice is really exaggerated. His pitch at this time was actually a little bit more natural of what Tom Kenny uh, does. Um, I don't want to say exactly how he came up with it because it's a little bit out there, but it is a fun fact that Tom Kenny came up with that voice by listening to a, I believe the political correct term at this point is little person uh, at the mall who was applying to be an elf for like, you know, Santa and like elves during Christmas time. <laughs> uh, so that's a fun fact. Nickelodeon does not like him telling that story. I, I, I yeah, I can see why. And it is interesting too. Something I noticed uh, while rewatching this episode is I don't believe uh, SpongeBob even does his iconic laugh uh, in in this beginning episode, which is I mean something that everyone who watches SpongeBob episode, but like it's it's just not present in this. I assume that it was obviously done at a later time. Uh, it's possible. I'm not sure if maybe they wrote a script and maybe Tom Kenny had to do it for the audition. Uh, that's something that. I don't have any information on whether or not that was something that was even tested, or if that's something he came up with one day and that just stuck for the character. But yeah, at this time, I don't believe we get that. Um, one thing to notice about Help Wanted is if you're just going off memory of when you watch it as a child, it's actually really short. Um, it moves very quickly from like beat to beat because they don't have a lot of time. You know, they probably didn't have a lot of budget, as I said. You can also see, you know, there's some reused animations in there, but I do think given the context of what it is, it's pretty acceptable. Uh, some of it's not very noticeable, parts of it are, but it still tells a cohesive narrative. Everything moves like it should. Nothing really looks like an animation error. You know, you're not getting any 
shots that are overlaid incorrectly or anything that looks egregious. So in that sense, um, especially for that time period when, you know, in the 90s, a lot of shows had little issues. So I feel like it's pretty acceptable. Yeah, and and watching it, you can definitely, like you said earlier, you can definitely tell that it's not the same animation, especially yeah, on SpongeBob's model. That that it, you can just tell it's slightly off. But yeah, it is very, it's still really good and and holds up, I think, reasonably well, especially compared to the rest of the show. Um, it it there's really nothing. It, it's not like you know there are some shows like um like Fairly Odd Parents. Uh, which the, if you watch the first episode and watch like any episode later, you can there's like a, there's a big change in how characters look and act and move. In this, there there is clearly some stuff, but it it seems pretty consistent. Uh, especially the animations themselves; those look pretty consistent in this episode as they will in later episodes. Mm-hmm. And yes, a part of that again might also be you know Fairly Odd Parents started as an oh yeah cartoons sketch, so that could be a part of it because I know a lot of things, especially when they started on one of those, like, okay, you know, here's basically a compilation of things that might one day become a show. They seemed, I'm not exactly sure what it's like to be an animator for that. Or if you just send that in to try and be on it, I'm not sure the process there, but a lot of those definitely end up getting really big changes when they actually become a show. But SpongeBob as a concept, you know, it's a very unique concept stylistically. So a lot of those things really, didn't need to change because it's so unique. You know, you just had to do some touch-ups. Some there's definitely some color corrections and changes. Squidward is a very light blue, which is yeah uh, an important observation, <laughs> but it's something you'll definitely notice. His color scheme is very light. It is yeah. It is it, there's just yeah. There's just like little things where if you took like a screenshot and compared it to another episode, you would definitely notice them. But they're not they're nothing that you're gonna be like, hey, that's completely different. And when you watch this one, it's nothing you know that noticeable. Exactly. And so to get more on what the actual plot of this segment is, um, presumably you'd watch it before watching this, but in case you want a rundown of it, if you're going to watch it after or something like that, essentially it's an introduction to the characters. You have SpongeBob. He lives in a pineapple. Um, apparently, if you don't think that's obvious, the show thinks you're strange because it does mention that. Uh, but he is... Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, uh, I just and I think it's interesting. Even before pineapple, the the narrator of the episode um, is you know obviously the same narrator that we'll hear in episodes down the line. But it, it's the the unique voice that 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 narrator has, and it doesn't appear anywhere else. And it just comes up from time to time and sets the stage. Some episodes it's not even in. It's very interesting the the choices that they make, and you can see it like episode to episode. There are just certain things that seem like they would be staples of a show. Or like of something else, but they're just kind of thrown in wherever in SpongeBob. So the narrator is like, I mean, the first one you see, and it he'll, he'll pop up every now and again, but not really like consistently. Uh, and I think it's interesting. And the voice is, is really unique. I think everyone, everyone, the uh, goo lagoon, like that that guy. I, I don't. I actually don't know That's that. Actually, Tom Kenny. Uh, oh, that is Tom Kenny. Two, oh, wow. It, that is true. Yes. So there is two narrators you'll see throughout the show. The one you see here, which I believe is. The one you see more often, unless the scene is supposed to be something more high energy, is Tom Kenny. But sometimes we get an opening where it's like, here we are at the Fry Cook Games. That's actually Plankton's voice actor. That one I think is oh, yeah. a little more obvious, though, because he really doesn't even change it. But yeah, Tom yeah. Kenny um, has actually a lot of range. But it does feel like after he got cast as SpongeBob, which was really his first uh, big voice acting role, uh, he did an interview where he told that story as well, where he essentially told his agent because he was going out for different live action parts at that time. Well, you know, see if you can get me any voice work because I think I can do that. And SpongeBob was his first real big break. So you can actually hear him in a lot of other things. I would say around like the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Like if you've ever played uh, Final Fantasy X, he is a significant amount of background characters in that game. But unless you know what you're looking for, you might not notice it's him. He he does have a very impressive range. Yeah, well, and uh, it, I considering mean, he's not just you know I'm SpongeBob. I can't do a fucking SpongeBob. Yeah, well, thing. I mean, and that's the thing too is if you ever see him like doing the SpongeBob voice, he's like pinching his throat, like kind of like moving his Adam's apple up, like while he like it's it's not anywhere like near a natural voice for him at all. He has to like put a certain amount of strain on his voice, so it makes sense that if he's doing other voice acting work that isn't you know supposed to be some sort of mimic of spongebob that it would sound completely different just because he's he's clearly having to do an unnatural strain on his voice to do the voice of spongebob yes and the narrator is obviously you know he's doing a french accent uh but that is a little bit closer to his normal voice and to go back to the narrator angle this is another one of those things that you're going to see that is very reflective of the original pitch bible because again the pitch bible is written as though it's 
biologists essentially documenting nature and newfound life. So in that sense, the audience is supposed to view the narrator as though they were watching a nature documentary. That's something that is, you know, never directly stated that that's what we're experiencing, but that is supposed to be the implication of why there's a narrator who speaks on things in that manner. And I suppose that's more just a holdover of that pitch Bible that that was used because, I mean, going on, he the narrator is mainly used to just kind of set the scene of what we're going to be looking at, like a new location um, or something like that. Uh, so I guess it, because it, it, I don't know if they actually kept the intention of that angle of like, the, the uh like a nature documentary but that may have just been like a holdover from that initial idea uh that stayed in was those the narrator setting up locations it's one of those things where the actual intention of it is never really clearly stated um i do believe in the way that they use him it's still meant to be as though that's the lens through which the viewer is seeing it however it is definitely left up to interpretation in the final product as to how you're supposed to view the fact someone is telling you about these events, because there are a lot of shows, you know, for children, especially, which is like, oh, you know, this is a thing that happened to this character this one time. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's very up in the air, but to move on to the actual plot, you know, after the narrator introduces the setting, which is bikini bottom, it's under the sea. Uh, I'm going to say the same, you know, fun fact, every single person on the internet has said a million times based on bikini atoll, which is a, place where essentially they did some nuclear weapons testing in the middle of the ocean so a game theory uh <laughs> they are because of nuclear radiation that's why bikini bottom exists but none of that's really relevant to the actual show itself um but in this we see you know spongebob he lives in a pineapple again narrator states that as though it's the most obvious thing in the world like what what else would a sponge live in of course he lives and in a so, pineapple you silly <laughs> exactly so he, he says that, you know, you watch Spongebob, he gets ready for the day and he's going to do something that no one has ever been enthusiastic to do but him, which is kind of part of his charm. He is going to apply to work at the Krusty Krab, which is like an undersea McDonald's. Um, if you want a visual of that, if somehow you don't know, again, you're listening to a Spongebob podcast, I would presume you'd know these things, but in case you're just new and you're curious, um, essentially, if you look at like a trap that fishermen would use for crabs, it's just that but it's repurposed for a restaurant, which it's ran by a crab, is the, is the little joke there. That's that's the secret SpongeBob joke they never tell you. Which is an interesting implication, because that means, like, Mr. Krabs was able to not only get, like, sink one of those traps to the bottom of the ocean, but then he used it to his advantage and repurposed it to a restaurant. So he almost got captured, and instead he just ended up turning it into his job, which is interesting. Certainly could be, could be. There's some... There's some words on the actual start of what the Krusty Krab was and how it came to be later in the show, mm -hmm. but we never really get a big discussion on on that. Uh, you know, maybe it's something they could explore in one of the newer seasons. I, I highly doubt they would because the show has changed quite a bit. But um, yeah, you know, it is one of those things that's just an interesting little tidbit about it. So he does get there. We see um, he passes two houses on his way. There is a Easter Island head. I believe those are normally called Moai statues, but in the show it's called an Easter Island head anytime they refer to it. Uh, that is the house of his neighbor Squidward, who is an octopus. This is a contentious point to make, but that is just the fact <laughs> yeah, of the matter. And then there's um, his friend Patrick, who's a starfish who lives under a rock. The implications to that are about what you'd expect them to be. Yeah. And so, you know, you just get this introduction. At that point, you see SpongeBob, you see Patrick. Uh, Squidward's already working at the Krusty Krab. So you kind of get this general gist of those characters. The rundown of the episode from there, SpongeBob tries to apply. Squidward says, no, Mr. Krabs, like, don't hire him. I think he's really annoying. So Mr. Krabs is like, okay, um, if you can go get this item, which probably doesn't exist, this like spatula with all these attachments. A hydrodynamic, a hydrodynamic exactly. spatula with port and starboard attachments. Uh, a couple other, uh, there's a couple other words that I don't remember to that. But yeah, it's just a, an order for a ridiculous high-tech spatula. Exactly, exactly. And SpongeBob, so his character at this point... Um, I wouldn't say he is like a child per se. SpongeBob's kind of just a guy, but he's a guy who carries a lot of naivete and a lot of innocence around. So when someone says, oh, you know, if you do this for me, then yeah, I'll reward you. He just presumes that they're being as earnest as he would be in that situation. So he goes out to try and get that. But then there is a rush of anchovies. The anchovies are also voiced by Tom Kenny. Uh, fun fact about oh. that. Yeah, he does a lot of the voice work there, um, which was probably a budgeting thing, yeah, is, especially sure. in a pilot. You know, if you have one guy who can do kind of a range, just have him do everything. Um, but And especially, too, um, if you're in a union, um, I believe, I'm not sure if this would have been the case at the time. I'm not sure if he was in one. If you do more than three separate credited roles, uh, they have to pay you extra. So 
that would be his limit of three on that episode. So I'm not sure if he plays anyone else there or what the specific workout with that was. However, so a bunch of anchovies come in and um, it's, it's kind of funny because they all act, you know, very rude, which as I say that, you know, you might imagine like, oh, you know, they're just being rude. No, it's like they, they cause chaos. They create waves. They basically destroy the restaurant. And I think the humor in there as a child, SpongeBob is very good at these dichotomies where it's like as a child, you think that's funny because you're seeing like destruction and all this movement and all this screaming and, you know, kids love when things are chaotic. As an adult, though, it's very relatable to anyone who's ever worked with yeah. like, consumers, customers, because they just are the worst people. <laughs> yeah. um, fun fact, if, you, if you've never worked retail or customer service, uh, yeah, everyone ever goes in there is the worst. It's just the worst person. So yeah, uh, it, it's something where it's like, yeah, that's about right. Like, it doesn't even really feel odd. It's just like an allegory for real life. It's just exactly how it would go. Um, so then SpongeBob does come back. Um, he went to the store. He did find the item they were looking for because... He got lucky, and that was where the plot needed it to go. <laughs> uh, you know, it is a children's cartoon. Not everything is like a super big, like, you know, plot point like that. But he comes back with it. And then we enter into a musical montage moment where there isn't any dialogue. It's just him performing the task of creating all of the meals, all the Krabby Patties, as they are called, for the anchovies and serving them. It has a lot of movement in it. It's basically supposed to be something it's... A, kind of visual spectacle there is some repeated animation in it for trying to be that but it gets across the point that in spite of his you know naive nature and his innocence he's good at what he wants to do and that does land him the job however at the end uh, Patrick comes in he asks for one Krabby Patty and Spongebob uh, makes a million of them launches, so. them, just launches them out the building by just exactly. machine gunning them at him and that's something interesting to note about that is from this point on SpongeBob will be shown exclusively to be very, very good at his job. However, the original implication of that, if we go back to the pitch Bible again, in it, it is listed that um, at the time his name was SpongeBoy, that SpongeBoy, <laughs> he has a lot of passion, a lot of heart, but he also is very overzealous. He gets very overexcited. And because of that, his ultimate goal is to one day be employee of the month, but his nature is just so over the top that he's never able to do so. And that's kind of what the holdover of that end there is, is to kind of show SpongeBob's nature. Uh, he gets overexcited, and when he gets overexcited, he does things to the extreme, which is still a true character trait. But it is interesting to see the way that that ties back into an original aspect of the character that you might not have ever known was an aspect he was meant to have if you watch the rest of the show. Well, yeah, because in the rest of the show, he is shown to pretty much exclusively have one employee of the month from the moment he got hired onwards. Um, and I think an interesting element of that, that I think uh, one thing I, we can start talking about is uh, character, like, traits and elements that were introduced in this episode. One thing that I think was interesting when I watched this is it one aspect of Squidward's character that I think anyone who's watched the show can, like, can see is, especially when it comes to his job, he's very lazy. He does not care about... Uh, he does not care about the Krusty Krab at all. He does not care about his job. He constantly talks about hating it and not wanting to be there. But in this episode, he actually isn't, like, the first time we see him, he's out in front cleaning a, a, a graffiti of himself that says loser off the window. And then when the anchovies come in, he actually, like, tries to do good customer service where, like, he says, like, can we please form a neat orderly line in front of the register? It's like, and he, like, he's constantly, like, there's no point in that where we actually see him say anything that would be, like, anti-work, which is a, I definitely a character trait of his that, that is in later episodes, but isn't really present in this one. So I wonder uh, if that wasn't an initial intention of the character. Yes, so that is definitely a point. Um, a lot of things that I really like about this first episode so far is when we're speaking of characters, the character dynamics and implied emotion, a lot of times in a children's cartoon, especially in the modern day, you kind of have a divide of like two different styles of cartoon. You have like, and it's kind of the same divide that existed back then too, that I already mentioned, where it's, you have kind of like more serious children's cartoons, where like they're trying to tell a story that like is trying to impart a lesson. And you have your like, you know, big over the top kind of cartoons. Um, but either way, it's very common, especially in this time period for either of those, like you're going to have a character be kind of direct about what they're feeling. If Hey Arnold is sad, grandpa's going to come in and be like, what's wrong? I see that you are sad. Or like, if like one of the angry beavers is mad, they're going to like yell at their brother at the top of their lungs. You know, that's going to be what happens in SpongeBob though. We really 
we can see how these characters are feeling without them needing to tell us in that you can see when SpongeBob, when SpongeBob, when Squidward is cleaning the window, um, you know, he has this like glazed over look in his eyes. Like, you know, he doesn't want to be there. You know, to him, it's just a job. He does not have the enthusiasm for that, that SpongeBob shows later. Um, and you can see he has this dynamic with Mr. Krabs too, where it's like, he's probably not the hardest worker because you can tell he has that pessimism. And when you act that way, you don't really give it your all, uh, which I don't blame anyone working in customer service for not giving their all. But <laughs> regardless of that, you know, the kind of dynamic he has with Mr. Krabs, which like clearly he's worked here a while. Mr. Krabs has respect for him and it doesn't really seem like anyone else wants to work here. So they kind of have a, a back and forth. You can see that. You can see SpongeBob and Patrick's back and forth too, where SpongeBob has a lot of self-doubt and that does come out in other ways later in the series, not so much about his work life or his friendship dynamics. He's very earnest and honest and forward thinking in those things. However, we see here that he doesn't have this self-confidence. So Patrick's there to kind of back him up, be his hype man. And you see that kind of dynamic where it's like SpongeBob needs something or someone to confide in. That's Patrick. Squidward and SpongeBob, their neighbors. Uh, SpongeBob thinks they have a good relationship, but Squidward clearly doesn't. And then Mr. Krabs respects SpongeBob because SpongeBob is good at what he does and he likes what he does. And none of those dynamics are directly told to you, but as you watch it, you don't need to be told because within this, I don't even think it's more than five or six minutes long, really. Uh, you can just see all of these things, which is one thing that makes it a really good pilot is it takes the time to establish how each character feels about each other and what their main attributes are, even if some of those things would change later. Well, yeah, and for sure. And um, one thing that I think... Uh, really is highlighted in this too is there are very core character traits that are again and never said but are established squidward does not like spongebob spongebob thinks squidward likes him mr krabs likes money patrick is dumb like all these things we see all of that in here and it's not really like it, it's never again it's never told to you but you just see it and they become very important character traits that that go you know that are seen even pro i assume today I, I we don't watch a ton of modern spongebob but again they're the things that are are still happening today exactly and you know it's another thing too about spongebob in this era is we say patrick is stupid yes we can see that however his stupidity here where he's like who like he's trying to hype spongebob up he's like whose first words were may i take your order who made a a spatula out of toothpicks and wood shop and then like the, he can't think of some who's who, who's who's square and has holes and it's like that is dumb but also this is something i really like about this era of spongebob is that still feels human if you're trying to hype someone up you might run out of things to say and just say some stupid shit to continue to hype them up and in that aspect even though it's a joke these are clearly cartoon characters there's a sense of humanity within them a sense of life that gives them dimension he's dumb in a way that an actual person could be dumb whereas i think later incarnations of the character um he's he just kind of says something that like makes absolutely no sense or just does something stupid just for the sake of it whereas that like you can kind of relate to that and like if you were dumber you might do something like that like you can relate to being trying to give a list of examples and being stuck on something and just kind of throwing something out there that doesn't work but if you were like a dumb person doing that you would probably just say something super like that you thought was super insightful, but it's just the most basic observation. And that's something that you can definitely relate to um, as like, you know, as just an actual person. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to later episodes, later ways the characters act when we do get there. But these are things going into it that if you are trying to kind of develop an interest in SpongeBob, if that is something that, for whatever reason you're interested in, in now, but you weren't when you were younger, or maybe you are younger and you're just discovering it, you know, it's important to note these kinds of things, because if you just try and jump into the show, I like at where it's at, the kinds of things you're going to observe are not going to be the kinds of things you see here, which is why it is important to establish some of those things now. But with that being said, uh, that is episode 1A, unless you had anything to add about Help Wanted specifically. Um, the only other thing I would add is uh, you, you briefly touched on it when we were going over the synopsis of the episode, but the first song that we hear, or not not the, there's the theme song, obviously, but the song that plays when SpongeBob is making the food. Um, I think it's important to talk about how 
how during the course of SpongeBob, there's a lot of songs that will just happen mid-episode, and they're all like really good and catchy. And and this song is no different. The I, I I don't even like I don't even to this day I don't even necessarily know a lot of the words from it. But just that high-pitched singing voice that goes on while he's dancing through the thing, and it's it's a really good, nice. I could listen to that song any day. Like just I, I would just listen to it on, and it would be an enjoyable song to watch. And that's something that happens throughout the rest of the show, where there's just a lot of really like catchy, good, like actually just good songs that play during uh during scenes that is true they got a lot of for like things like that where it is lyrical and there's not actual dialogue going on a lot of those are i believe by now they'd be public domain but they are just actual songs that existed before like they weren't written for the show but it's one of those situations where they found something that fit the vibe and I don't know if I, I presume they animated around it as opposed to animating then finding the song because I feel like the yeah that would be a, it that makes would be more a pain. sense to find the song first in my opinion yeah I'm not an animator so I guess I could be corrected on that but yes and then before we move on just one more note um because it applies more it, it applies to the whole show really but it applies more specifically to this pilot even if the animation is definitely pilot quality in some places there's still this kind of like doofy charm to it it's like the characters like they make these like scraggly kind of smile expressions or like this really over the top like oh no it's spongebob i do not like that he is here um everything is just this kind of real doofy vibrant kind of expression of like feeling emotions without you needing to be told they're feeling emotions. You just know. And that kind of ties back into what we were already saying. Mm -hmm. uh, but with that, we do go into 1B Reef Blower. Now, I would state that this isn't so much a full like episode segment as it seems to be an experiment. Yes. So almost going off of the back of what we just saw at the end of Help Wanted, where it's a musical montage of SpongeBob performing an action, Reef Blower is this very kind of artistic styled bit. It has no words in it. It's just music and sound effects. The general plot of it, you know, very easy to follow because it's just things you see. No one's really talking or anything like that. Um, even so, it is still very expressive, though. You can definitely see things happening. It is you know, it's called Reef Blower, which um, for those of you who, again, don't know the show, it's basically like that's a pun on Leaf Blower. Um, it's something that blows around debris dirt things like that and so spongebob essentially sees a little scallop type piece of just refuse on the ground in front of his house uh squidward actually kicked it there which yeah, is something that, that, that is important I for the notice that it yeah. was squidward who did that the first time i watched it but i was also a child so well and that and that is important for the plot of the episode that squidward did kick it over because that i kind of, kind of comes into a theme of the episode as a whole it's but also incident but also his character i think too is is it's a it's an important not moment for the character but establishing like what the character does and how things happen to him that is another very good show don't tell establishment of the kind of person squidward is because squidward sees that there's essentially like trash you know i don't know if trash is really the right word for it, but you know just it, it would be it, it would i be mean like a leaf. yeah it would yeah it would be trash for on for the sea a little shell like yeah, yeah it's like be... you know natural trash it's not like somebody threw like a, a can of something in his yard regardless mm -hmm. of that though you see this kind of selfish nature where he's like i don't want to deal with this properly so i'm going to kick it into spongebob's yard um which kind of shows this dynamic where, like, not only does he have a lack of respect for SpongeBob, but he's sort of prioritizing himself over his neighbors. And then, you know, SpongeBob, he comes outside, he sees that. And again, this is something we're really, it, it's something more visual that should be watched as opposed to explained to you. But just to give you an idea of it, you know, SpongeBob, he gets out his reef blower, he tries to blow it around. He has some trouble with that because, you know, as has been established by the last episode, he's very, over the top, he's overzealous. He puts a lot of energy into everything he does. He ends up making a big mess around everywhere, uh, except for his yard, which does end up staying clean, but Squidward's gets much dirtier, kind of giving that karmic payback of, you know, this only happened because Squidward tried to be selfish and then SpongeBob just tried to do his best. Exactly, and and that's a that's a big thing uh, between their two characters. Because again, as we established earlier, Squidward doesn't like SpongeBob. SpongeBob thinks Squidward likes him and thinks they're just good friends and neighbors. Um, but th something that happens a lot, and, and it's seen in this episode, and it happened in the last episode too, things just kind of end up working out for SpongeBob. 
always just because he has such a positive i mean maybe not necessarily because but that's a clearly a reflection of that that he just has such a positive upbeat attitude about everything things just kind of go his way even when nobody else thinks they will so in the last episode it was finding the ridiculous spatula order in this one it was he was trying to get something off his lawn uh it ended up making a mess but his his lawn was completely fine and squidward on the other hand who tried to cause a problem tried to do something you know mean got it dealt back a hundred times to him when he actually tried and that's a big that's a big thing between the two characters where things almost always go wrong for squidward not necessarily by his own making but usually because of it generally it is the way it relates is again spongebob and squidward have a very visible dichotomy that has become very iconic um i would say in culture in general is that spongebob like a lot of people with modern Spongebob, we'll compare Squidward is the adult view of the world, this cynical kind of crushed, depressed view of it. And Spongebob is kind of like a more childish, like optimistic, innocent, hopeful view. Um, I think that does kind of discredit though, that an adult can be hopeful and optimistic. But regardless of that tangent, it's basically to show that these different mindsets, the kind of results that they get people and how if you are optimistic, even when things don't work out, if you gave it your best, you'll have something to be happy about and to continue to look forward to. Whereas if you're always looking for something to be bad, you're going to be having a bad time. And that's a really important theme throughout the entirety of the show, really. Obviously, you know, it's never directly stated. It's really more of an undercurrent, but it kind of imparts this idea. If you, you know, watched it a lot growing up, I don't think it would be a stretch to say it imparts a mindset about what kind of behavior gets you what, uh, just because it's something that, again, you're not shown, but it's something that you definitely are going to absorb. Yeah, for sure. Um, one other thing that I wanted to talk about with this episode was uh, the, and I think this is, again, this goes for the whole show, but the sound design in this episode, because there is no dialogue, the only non-diegetic sounds are uh, the music that you hear, but everything else, the, the sound, like every single movement has a sound that you would expect to be associated with that. When, you know, when the the, the leaf or the reef blower, sorry, uh, breaks down, like it, it like coughs and it's like, it's a really like coughing sound. You hear like a pile of like trash and mechanics uh, get flown out of it and it sounds like that spongebob twirls it around and you hear like you hear a very a very nice and solid twirl and he puts it down it, and it, every single movement and action has a sound and that sound is is very crisp very clear and it is very much what you would expect something like a cartoon thing to sound like uh in the environment that it's in it's the antithesis of johnny test essentially where <laughs> almost every single movement is pronounced with a whip crack uh, which, whether that makes sense or not, is just there to hide the fact that it's animated very poorly. Uh, regardless, though, SpongeBob is actually animated very fluidly, especially with the traditional animation that was being used at this time. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really have that same issue. And this idea of music and montage that we've been touching on, because ultimately that's what this is, we will see it a few more times throughout the show, but we will never see it in the same way. If I had to make some guesses and some presumptions about why that is, Spongebob is a show that even at this time, it very quickly became incredibly quotable and incredibly popular. However, when your characters don't say any words, don't make any witty jokes, it's difficult to discuss that episode with other people and to form discussions and thoughts about it. So, and I think that might be part of the reason that after this, we kind of move away from this experiment. Um, it is something to be noted as well that you know, as I said, this is by the same team, Stephen Hillenberg, Derek Drymon, Tim Hill. Those were the writers for 1A. They're also the writers for 1B. And it makes me wonder if maybe this was an alternative form of pilot. It is a lot more cleaned up, so I, I kind of doubt that. But it just has a very unique style to it, even within the show itself, in that there's not any other singular episode that is like this. There's a much, 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 much later episode called Slide Whistle, which has a similar sort of idea going on, but it's not really with this kind of um, care and polish, I guess I would say, that this has. With there, it's more like a gag here. It's more like an artistic concept. Yeah, and, and perhaps that was just because, again, like you, you mentioned earlier, um, that the, if the show was intended to originally be kind of a documentary style, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, I mean, if you've watched any Nacer documentaries, the animals don't talk, there's no 
necessarily character there so it does make sense to to maybe again maybe their idea for it was yeah you'd have some episodes with story and characters and conversations but then maybe you would also like uh cut in some episodes of not talking and just those characters acting you know i mean that that again if this episode was because again like you said this is one of the few episodes that has three parts um, maybe this was going to only be a two-parter episode, and so one episode is dialogue, one episode is not dialogue. You know, we don't really know what their what their uh, whole intention was with this. And I'll admit here now, off the top of my head, um, I don't know what season five's ABC structures are like. I know one of them is kind of just an episode where all the bits were too short, and that one of them is just like Squidward follows a man around town trying to figure out what his full name is. Oh yeah, but. Um, that is actually that is a yeah. um, see episode of a plot. I, I think this is also an important time to mention that we have not seen every episode of SpongeBob that has ever come out. We watch obviously the first. Uh, I don't know when. When is like a good like season eight maybe? Um, and then we haven't watched you know any of the new stuff in years, which I think they're still technically making it. So if we this do if we do end up getting that far, we will eventually get into territory that. We've either A, only seen a couple times, or B, just have never seen. So, again, I, this won't be relevant for a while, but just thought I'd mention it here. Um, so, if there's any concepts, if any of this stuff comes up in much later episodes, just know that we we probably haven't uh, seen that. The general fan consensus, as well, is... So, the airing order, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure this is true. You have seasons one, two, three... And then the movie comes out. Yes. And then after the movie, there's a shift in quality that most would consider downward. I would say that from there, there's some really low lows, but it's not just downward momentum right from there. Um, and especially compared to not the most, most modern stuff, but episodes that were coming out a few years back, um, again, have that very different style where a lot of the elements we've talked about here are not going to be here. And Again, you know, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, but it is something important to note that you're likely going to hear if you're exploring the SpongeBob fan community, seasons one, two, three, and the movie, and that's all that's really cared about. Mm -hmm. And I am of the mind that you should judge for yourself uh, if you want yes. to continue watching past that, if you get all the way through that. Go ahead, see if you want to jump around from there. Hey, that's fine. I don't believe in a purity of media where it's like you have to watch everything in order especially for an episodic show like, yeah no but you don't have to care about the plot structure of spongebob like it, you don't have to care about the 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 creator's vision of order like it's not yeah no it's not important i would say you know if you want to definitely start at the beginning like we're doing here because again we're introducing concepts that will become regular as time goes on it kind of makes sense to at least watch the first few episodes before you start jumping around but you can kind of do whatever you want after that. This really isn't the show where, you know, status quo is going to be constantly changing. Um, you will see small changes over time, though. And those are not normally presented as in-universe, like changes that happen to the characters. It's just kind of changes in writing team philosophy. And just when shows go on for a long time, these things happen. But to get back to the last segment of this first episode after that tangent, which again is important. It does relate in many ways because this is kind of all about where we're starting and where we're going to go from here. Um, the last segment, this is another um, segment that has dialogue. It's more of a normal show, so to speak. It is 1C. It is called Tea at the Tree Dome. This was actually written by, as I said, a different team. So the first two episodes were written by, as I said, Stephen Hillenberg, Tim Hill, and Derek Drymon. This specific part of the episode was written by Peter Burns, Mr. Lawrence. Uh, don't ask me why he doesn't include his first name in his <laughs> professional titles, but he does not. It's a secret and, agent. Exactly, yes. Uh, it's an alias, I'm sure. And Paul <laughs> Tibbet. So you see here, there is a slightly different energy. It's still very much so that it follows a lot of the same ideas because again, a lot of these early episodes were in the pitch Bible. So Steven Hillenberg kind of penned out the scenario. One thing to note here is, as you might've guessed, if you're already familiar with the show Tea at the Tree Dome, this is where Sandy gets introduced. She is a squirrel. She comes from above land, but she lives in what's called the tree dome. It's essentially this dome that has a big tree in the middle so that she can get oxygen. She has a diver's suit essentially that allows her to breathe as she goes around and interacts with the other residents of the world. 
Essentially, if there if there's an aquarium for land, this would be like an underwater aquarium for like for air, essentially. In a sense, yeah, she has a little bit more control than the fish in an aquarium. Yes, do, obviously. <laughs> the interesting thing to note about her is this is another one of those things where if you look at the implications of this, it's actually going to end up tricking you later because the way that it was written in the pitch Bible is that Sandy is and SpongeBob like. It's essentially supposed to be like a crush situation where like they kind of like like each other, but neither of them really wants to like discuss it because they don't know each other too well. Yeah. Um, and you sort of see it here, like there's an exchange when they very first meet where she's like, I like you, SpongeBob. She's from Texas, by the way. <laughs> um, and SpongeBob's like, I like you too, Sandy. And you get this kind of vibe that he's trying to impress her. Um, like, yes, like, oh, what are you wearing? And she's like, oh, you know, this is my helmet, it has air in it. I need to breathe the air. And he's like, oh, air? Ah, oh, God, I love air. Air is like the best thing ever. Like he's trying to impress her clearly. So, you know, she invites him over for tea and cookies. He does not know what air is. Patrick thinks she's putting on airs, which is not something any child understood the meaning of when they watched this. <laughs> it's definitely not. And that's, you know, to go off on yet another tangent, that's one of the things I really like about SpongeBob in its kind of wittily crafted dialogue segments like that is you know, SpongeBob is not an educational cartoon. Like this is not cyber chase. It's not trying to teach you how to multiply or whatever, but it is, I'm not sure if it was intentional or if the writing staff was just quirky in that you have bits like that. And you'll have bits later that are references to classical English literature or classic movies where a child is not going to know that. And it's going to spark a curiosity in those classic cultural land points, um, landmarks rather. And I'm not sure if that was intentional, but I do think that is one of the positives of the show is that even if you're not learning, it's probably sparking a curiosity in you, uh, which I think is a good thing, especially for, you know, a piece of children's media. Children generally know when you're trying to teach them something, but that's obviously not direct. That's just kind of teaching you to think and explore culture. Well, and even if it doesn't spark that in them, again, and, and this is something that is said about all great um, children's cartoons that adults can also watch, is that there'll just be jokes that are in there for them, or there'll be certain lines or certain references that'll kind of be like, hey, parents, you watching? So even if a kid doesn't hear that line and essentially and know where to where to take it in their curiosity, it's, it's a throwaway enough line where if the parent or an adult hears it, they'll be like, hey, I, that, I know what they're talking about. And so, you know, it's maybe a little fun bit for them or just something again like people like us where we we know what they're talking about later yeah i mean we know now we probably didn't get it then yeah but no. that's just one of those things which it's a very memorable line because i think it was so hard to understand as a child yeah and then he essentially gets um advice from patrick here that i think is important to bring up because it's like a big bit in the episode is um you know high class people raise their pinky when they do actions pinky up and that is almost certainly directly correlated this is something that i don't think people notice that i do this uh i'm almost certainly do it because of this episode yep. when i hold a bottle i i don't raise my pinky but i also do not rest my pinky on it 100 if i i if i am ever especially a wine glass something like a wine glass if i'm ever holding a wine glass i i'm always like a little bit pinky up but yeah, a lot of times when I'm touching stuff, and it's just, and I'm sure everyone here who who watched SpongeBob as a kid can relate to a time where like you you it's just it feels improper, especially in a, like a nice restaurant or something, to be holding a drink and having your pinky touch the glass in any way, because and I, it's because of this episode. And I mean, that is also you know, if you're the type of person who was forced to go to like a grammar school or something like that, they probably did teach you a rule like that. I don't know because I never went to something like that. I know that is proper manners, but. It's just funny because it's not something that a normal person really does unless it's like because of something like this because you wouldn't even think about it. And um, I would like, I would honestly like a, I would honestly even be willing to bet that people that did go to like fancy schools, fancy pants manner schools, they probably do it less than people that watch SpongeBob just because this is something that you still I mean I still people I still hear people like every now and then say pinky up or when in doubt pinky up, which is just shows how like iconic this episode is. At this point, it's like it's an unconscious thing. I have not consciously done it in at least since I was a child. I'm sure I, when I started, it must have been conscious. But now that's just how I hold things. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, it is one of those things, again, where SpongeBob has a very unique kind of power where it just it was so big and so relevant that these little things, these throwaway things, the writers could have never possibly known 
we're just going to become part of the cultural landscape and shape like essentially a whole generation's like humorous styling yeah. in that there's not a whole lot of people in the age group of, you know, that would have been nineties kids or like early, early two thousands kids who don't have a kind of sense of humor that was informed by SpongeBob or is at least congruent with SpongeBob. Meanwhile, older people generally don't see much in it or they have problems with the fact that it was shown to children due to little things later that, I don't think are that big of a deal, but you know, older people have older values. Well, and it's it's to the point where it's so cultural culturally relevant that the current cultural like zeitgeist, which is you know places like Twitter and TikTok, there are people that are today. Uh, this is something I brought up to you uh, a few weeks ago, Kurt. But I've noticed that there's people that are finding out now that there are kids that just didn't watch spongebob and they're actually freaking out because they're like how like how do you have a personality just because it's so ingrained in all of our minds this show that we all watch and we reference all the time i mean how often do you see a sponge like you know every now and again the meme cycle of of today's culture you know there's a bunch of different stuff but every you know every few weeks there's a spongebob meme that goes viral and is like is popular for for a week or two and then it'll go away and then you know like a month or so later another one will be popular and just kind of in line with all the other stuff that's going on and it just shows how popular the show was and even continues to be and even then it's almost like you know it's not like that because the show was popular but rather the show was popular because it was so witty and so quirky in its presentation of these things uh, that it's stuck in people's minds and that it continues to stick in people's minds and continue to be culturally relevant to the point where it's like, I think one of the longest running cartoons ever. It is not the longest running, but it is I definitely that would go getting to the, up there. I believe that would go to The Simpsons, if I had to guess. I, I believe The Simpsons is at least the Western longest running show. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure what the specific metrics are of that overall throughout the entire world. But yes, you know, definitely up there. So to get back to it, um, you know, the cultural zeitgeist of raising your pinky. Yes. So SpongeBob, you know, takes that to heart. He goes over, finds out what air is. <laughs> now, you may not expect it because he's a sponge, but as a sea creature, he needs water to be able to breathe. And he did not have a concept of the fact air was a lack of water. And so he's basically sitting there dying. But this is something I really like about him is that I read the implication of this as he's too socially anxious to tell Sandy, hey, I was lying to you. I need water really bad. He would rather just sit there and die than let her know there is a problem. The only time he asks for water from her the entire time is when she just casually, and he he just says, water would be nice. Water would be nice. (laughs) Yeah, it's... That's a good voice. Um, yeah, no, that's the only time he mentions it. And he asks it just like a normal request, not something that is like, not, hey, I'm literally going to die. Exactly. And I, I think that is a bit of an important point in that um, I'll, I'll come back around to it. But after that, so, you know, Sandy, she's like going back and forth. She kind of seems to be noticing something's wrong. But at the same time, she's trying to be a good host. She's making sure she has the tea, the cookies, all that ready, um, trying to show him around. And Patrick is kind of outside of the tree dome. He's just yelling in like, SpongeBob, you got to tough it out. You got to raise your pinky. And SpongeBob's literally dying in there. But Patrick does not comprehend that SpongeBob's literally dying. So Patrick comes in because SpongeBob's like, I cannot do this. I have to leave. Patrick comes in and is like, oh, we should probably try and leave. But at that point, they're, they're unable to open the door. Sandy comes back to them. And she, she gives them the opposite of an air helmet. She gives them a water helmet so that they're able to exist in there she gives a line here that is like oh well if y'all needed water he just should have asked and you could see that as kind of a plot problem because he did indeed like obviously not with any urgency but he did ask for some water which she never brought him i will say though i do not see this as a plot issue this is actually a subtle character trait sandy at least this early incarnation of sandy shows a lot where she's kind of so in her own mind about making sure that the things she's doing go her way and how they want that she doesn't really accept outside input. Um, I know if you're looking for a specific example, Shane, um, hibernation week is a really good one where SpongeBob is very uncomfortable for like almost that entire run of that. And she's actively choosing not to deal with that fact until SpongeBob makes a big deal out of it. So I, I think she just kind of has a very headstrong, um, 
not really paying attention to what's going on around her attitude at this time. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where her character trait very, at least in this aspect, needs to be, if you don't directly tell me, I'm just going to be doing what I'm doing until I hear differently. And and it kind of pairs perfectly with SpongeBob's character, which is, I will, I will curtail my entire life to whatever the person in front of me wants to do, even to his own detriment. So that is, it's an interesting character dynamic there. Um, but for a second, going back to the moment where um, Sandy finds uh, both SpongeBob and Patrick essentially dying in her tree dome, uh, the shot that actually shows that is a realistic uh, photo of a sponge and a starfish, or at least a, de a depiction of them lying there, which is something that is is uh, carried on, again, another trait of the show where things in this cartoon world will sometimes just turn incredibly realistic there'll just be instances where you just see something like just an actual picture or items from the real world that are in the backdrop of this cartoon. And I think it's, it's a very interesting choice that they do and they do it. Um, I don't, I don't think in this episode, obviously there's, there's plenty more down the line. Um, but I don't think in this episode, there's any other examples of that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Yes. Early on the show likes to kind of blend this style of throwing in a real world picture or, sometimes a real world person for a gag or a comedic effect. The implication going forward with that is when a sea creature dries out, they just become like a realistic stock photo of whatever sea creature they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. uh, we see this a couple more times throughout the series. It's not something that happens too, too often, but yes, as you did correctly know, it is something that carries forward in that when you see that the subtle storytelling is that, you know, in losing their cartoon aspects, they are losing their life. They're losing what makes them alive. And so that's kind of why that's done that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, one other, uh, I, I think it's important to mention, because again, this is all about uh, cultural relevance and stuff like that. Another joke that is uh, takes place in the, um, in the episode is the, I don't need it. I don't need it. I need it, which is just so, so, like, everyone knows that people, I'll see people reference that all the time um, whenever they're, like, you know, people, if they're, like, it, 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 I see it a lot, like, when people are trying to prevent themselves from impulse buying something or whatever, so it's interesting how that, how, how lines like this that weren't necessarily about that have carried with us to the modern day and we're relating that line to, like, our real life problems now. It's something that's an inherently relatable struggle, um, in his case, much more than in a lot of real life cases where it's like you're fighting a desire and you're telling yourself you don't need something that you clearly very much so don't believe you don't need. Mm -hmm. uh, but even then, we have those and those carry forward because they're so relatable and because they're so applicable. But there's plenty of lines as well that might not get quoted as often because they're not relevant to situations we experience every day, but they're still very witty very funny to experience like there's an interaction they have where sandy's like you know you're the first sea creator creator, creator. the first sea creator to ever visit i can't imagine why <laughs> and it's like it's just funny because you're sitting there and you're seeing you know not to explain a joke because that is never a funny thing to do but it's it's very clear why it is that no one would come but he's being polite and he's given I don't even know if SpongeBob, a lot of the characters I think do it intentionally. I don't know if SpongeBob does it intentionally, but there's a lot of quipping, especially early on, where it's like these ideas of like comedic timing are just something these characters are naturally very good at. And I, I think it also goes, uh, it, it's different character to character. You know, Sandy's is is very much more like blunt, whereas SpongeBob's is more like, he does in, in the way we kind of talked about, he's doing it more like kind of a polite backhanded way um squidward or uh not squidward's uh patrick's quips are a lot more like again they're they're it, the implication is he's dumb so they're a lot more like simple um and then squidward's are a lot more sarcastic so they they are very quippy but they're they're quippy in different ways which i think is really good and it gives them dynamics they can have between each other like that where two different characters not ever speaking or feeling the same way automatically can create either community or tension, either way, you know, that's basic storytelling is you want people to have a lot of differences. So it's interesting when they come together. And this show has done a very good job of giving the characters, I almost hesitate to say strong personalities because I do believe they have strong personalities, but in the realm of children's cartoons, that makes you think of 
maybe things where it would almost be a negative, like to be the millionth person who talks about a cartoon and brings it up, Teen Titans Go, those characters have very bombastic personalities, but the personalities aren't different and they're so over the top that they no longer feel even the slightest bit human. And to some extent, that's okay. Not every show has to have characters that are trying to be like humans would speak to each other. There can be something interesting and something funny in those other styles, but I find it to be something I can appreciate wholeheartedly when SpongeBob characters act this way, where it's like, this is a conversation that two people could just have. Yeah. And I think, um, especially me and you, we, we watched some clips, uh, you know, in preparation for the show and something that we very much noticed, um, differing the earlier episodes from the later ones is that the early episodes, the, the character traits that we're all talking about aren't like, they're, they're not super, they're not charged to 11. They're subtle enough where you can tell that they are their character traits, but they're in a way that an actual, you know, that are, it's more relatable. It's more understandable. Whereas the later episodes of SpongeBob, these character traits are turned up to 11 to the point where they don't feel like actual character traits. They just, they're just tropes at that point. So uh, Patrick just is not so, somebody who's dumb, but sometimes is like, kind. it can be kind of smart and understanding. He's just flat dumb. He'll do, he'll do and say the most ridiculous stuff because that is the joke is he's dumb. Um, SpongeBob isn't kind of annoying because he's more naive like and and doesn't really understand stuff. He is just flat. He does not understand anything that's going on around him. Um, He's just doing his best. Yeah, Squidward isn't somebody who's more realistically tired of the world. He's just lazy and like you know in, in the most ridiculous non. You know, um, Mr. Cra again, I could go on like Mr. Krabs isn't just uh, greedy, like because he just likes money and runs a business. He would like you know it, it's all these things that I think are get kind of lost when you when you dial them up that extreme mr krabs is a lazy fat red crab i cannot finish this reference because it's bad <laughs> but if you know you know um with that being said did you have any kind of closing statements as we reach near the end of episode one and what it has to offer that you wanted to make sure to get out there any thoughts you were going through your head with it um, I suppose one thing that, and this kind of goes for this whole episode, is a lot of the really subtle things that aren't touched on um, in this episode, really, other than just kind of showing them, and then they get introduced more, um, more later. So in this episode, uh, the beginning of it is we see SpongeBob jellyfishing, uh, which is the idea. It's basically butterfly hunting, but for jellyfish because it's underwater. We see him doing that at the start of this episode. He he's like, oh, that this one has four stingers, and you know, and that's something that you know there will be episodes about later. Um, another one is though the the thing that kind of bonds Sandy and SpongeBob is karate, which is it's kind of again it's not really ever addressed in this episode. It's just shown that they are doing karate to each other, and it's it's really interesting these subtle things that will come up later. Um, and again, it's another praise for the show that that they have these ideas of things they want to do later and they're taking the time now to introduce them instead of just later in the show being like, hey, this is something that SpongeBob does, you know? And that would be perfectly acceptable. This is a kid's show. You don't need to show everything all at once, but I think it does show the care that went into making this show that they took the time to introduce some of those elements. Now, instead of just having SpongeBob do nothing at the start of this episode, they showed him doing something that'll be important later. It makes it feel, like I said earlier, it makes them feel like people. They have things they like to do. They have things they're interested in. And we see that time and time again, where the episode might not be about it, but they have lives that they're living. Another thing that could be noted, I have no idea whether this is intentional or not. The jellyfish SpongeBob fails to catch at the beginning of the episode is blue, which mm. might have significance later. I have no idea if at this point in the show that was something planned. I didn't read anything about it when I was studying the pitch Bible, but it, it is interesting to note because most jellyfish in the show are actually a different color than that mm -hmm. coming, uh, going forward. I assume not just because I, 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 and I could be wrong about this, but I remember in the episode you're talking about uh, the one with the, the blue jelly. Um, it, SpongeBob definitely thinks it's a much bigger deal that he's found a blue jellyfish. So I think that's just something that they forgot 
that they had done that they had made it blue and just changed the color of the jellyfish and then didn't necessarily realize oh hey we're gonna make this super important blue jellyfish later um didn't necessarily think like oh hey in that first episode we had it be blue so why wasn't he as freaked out about it back then as he is in this later episode i think that's just probably something that again and completely understandable i i, I totally get why they wouldn't have caught that but I, I i think that might be why but i mean you you might be right i mean it's one of those things where it, it might be an opposite cause and effect where he didn't catch it in this episode and it was blue so later they decided to use that as a marker of one he hadn't caught uh, again, I have no idea if it was intentional, if there was any back and forth thought of it at all, if like later they thought back to it, or if they had plans for the future at that time, or if it is all just coincidence. But I did just think it was something interesting to make a note of. No, for sure. Excuse me. Um, and yeah, with that, I mean, there's, you know, and we're, we're gonna we're gonna go into it a lot more. Uh, but just SpongeBob as a whole is is such a it's such an interesting show because. Uh, and uh, a lot of kids TV really tried to to be certain things. They tried to be educational. They tried to be funny and over the top. They tried to teach good life lessons, all these things. And SpongeBob, in a weird way, does that by trying to do none of it. It's not really trying to be over the top. It's not necessarily like trying to teach life lessons. It's not necessarily trying to be anything. It's just itself. And it manages to accomplish it better than a lot of shows that are explicitly trying to do those things ever did. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, it's very unique in that it feels like it just wants to tell a story, but the way that the writers craft that story per episode has those kinds of elements in it. And those are just you know elements of good storytelling. Again, it's surprising to me in the sense that some of these writers have a lot of credits before, some of them do not but they all seem to have done a really good job, if you ask me, in these subtle, like they didn't fall into any of the easy traps of being a beginner writer, of telling something but not showing it or making something seem weird. No, they actually do a really good job of making sure their stories make sense. They feel human, you know, as much as they need to. And they give you this feeling of kind of attachment to it and ability to relate and mirror with it in a way that makes sense and allows you to enjoy it as a story i completely agree well uh what do you think kurt does that does that wrap us up for the first one i would say it does uh for anyone listening i thank you for reaching the end of this first episode if you have interest in listening to further episodes these will be kept in a playlist it will be in multiple different places different sites so you can go ahead and check around um depending on which site you're using this may be different but do go ahead and give a follow, a subscribe, whatever type of way there is to keep track of it. We will be uploading more episodes and we will be making them around the same length, around the same sorts of information. So if this is something that seemed interesting to you, uh, we certainly hope to see you here again. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.